0: University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission, to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, And for this episode, I chatted with Stephen Long, Principal Architect at the Architecture and Design Studio, Architectus.
1: Do I see design everywhere? Um, Yeah, I I do. And I've got a really bad habit of um, being out and about and kind of disengaging with the conversation and staring at things. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, I think that's part of a, part of um, being an architect is appreciating design in all of its uh, forms, and it might be in the natural environment or the built environment or in artworks or, or music.
0: Stephen and his team at Architectus, along with James Cubitt Architects, are responsible for the design and development of the Boiler House Discovery Space.
1: I guess one of our well-known projects is the Queensland um, Gallery of Modern Art, GOMA, um, which is a well-known project in Brisbane. And then in Sydney, currently we're working on the Sydney Modern Project at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, um, which is under construction at the moment. And, but we also have some other well-known buildings in Sydney, including a very well-known commercial tower in Sydney called One Bly Street, um, which was um, renowned for its um, sustainability initiatives. Yeah, and we do sort of quite a wide range from um, schools, universities. Um, major transport um, projects, um, commercial projects, but we do work on smaller scale projects as well and we're currently at the moment uh, completing a a project in western Queensland which is a small um, museum which is focused on natural history and and
0: dinosaurs. The Boiler Heist Discovery Space is in the early days of its development. I wanted to ask Stephen where the project is at and what developments we can expect to see over the next few months.
1: You know, we're really at an exploratory phase at the moment, so as I said, the team's um, visiting Armidale and doing some initial um, explorations of the site, and um, our partners, James Cubitt Architects, have a a long history of working at UNE and Armidale, so they bring um, their knowledge of the community um, to the project, but um, for our team that's uh, visiting the site, it's a great opportunity for them to just get that first-hand experience of of um of the environment that we're going to be working in and i guess a couple of initial um considerations i guess one is community um when we talk about community we're talking about the community of the campus of the town of the region um the unique climate of armadale the landscape topography um uh, experiences that are unique in armadale and as we've already t- been talking about um in indigenous significance um that uh, Local indigenous significance that um, might be able to be um, brought into the project as well. Um, we've got, we've got, I guess, two elements to it. We're develop- we're developing a design for the building itself, but we're also de- designing the interactive spaces within the building. And um, uh, so, there's kind of two, two layers to the design. So, initially, we'll, we'll be focusing on the building and and thinking of the building um, in terms of a a design that has a a long life, and then we'll be turning our attention to the um, interactive component of it, which is the um, experiences which are part of the learning environment.
0: The boiler house, when completed, will be many things. A play space, a learning environment, a community space, and an iconic piece of architecture. I chatted with Stephen about the design process going forward, and how they go about taking all of these things into consideration.
1: Just to, I guess, explain the process a little bit. Um, We start with um, areas that we need to achieve for different parts of the building. So we start by thinking about how those, um, in broad terms, how those different functional areas will relate to one another. So we do um, some spatial diagrams that explore various options for how we could um, configure those main um, spaces. And then once we that sort of starts to um, kind of uh, get locked down, or everyone starts to agree on that general approach, then we start to look at the planning within those uh, ind- individual spaces and the design within those um, spaces. And then as that develops, we then get down to the to the, the finer grain of light switches and and lights and and all of those sorts of things. So it starts. Quite broad, and when I say spatial um, diagrams as well, um, sometimes that's just in plan, but sometimes, and probably in this building, it'll be volumetrically as well. So, we'll be doing massing studies in 3D to understand how these spaces work, um, uh, not just in plan, but also in, in height as well. You know, the brief for the project is about um, providing learning experiences and a range of learning experiences, and, and they're quite. Um, uh, the, the brief that we received is really engaging and provides a lot of scope for us to imagine quite unique um, experiences that can be delivered and enjoyed, not just as a kind of one off, but that we're, we're really interested in creating experiences that people want to come back to and revisit and revisit and revisit time and again. We haven't designed in detail any of those spaces, but we've, we've Started some initial explorations of what those, um, what that means and, um, starting to think about how we can choreograph those experiences as well. Um, and, um, you know, considerations like daylight considerations um, between the barriers or not or breaking down the barriers between indoor and outdoor um, experiences that might be totally external or internal experiences that might feel like they're outdoors Um, so quality of light I guess is going to be a key feature of this building and the quality of natural light um, during the day um, and another interesting thing we've been talking about is how might this building be experienced at nighttime as well? So we think when we think about designing uh, a building for young um, people to enjoy. We think of daytime experiences generally, I guess, but it also, it can also be a building that has some fantastic nighttime experiences. So thinking about the night sky and how the building can relate to the night sky, how the building's um, seen at night as well from a distance or up close, all of those things are um, really exciting opportunities to consider.
0: Stephen and his team are facing a grand challenge of creating a contemporary learning space out of an old industrial building that was originally built to house coal-powered boiler units to heat the campus of the University of New England. I asked Stephen what challenges they were facing in working with the existing boiler house building and how it influences their design process. The
1: the building um, had some work done to remove materials that were um, either damaged or had um, sort of environmental health issues. And so what we've been left with is... um, A frame, and so there's um, some, I guess, some distinct forms. And one's a a coal hopper um, that fed the boiler house, and also a steeply pitching uh, frame that was um, part of a roof. So it's quite a tall volume. Um, And these are really, they're pretty exciting forms to start with on a project. Um, Normally, we start a project with a blank sheet of paper, and we Inventing uh, forms and spaces, but in this case, we're starting with some really distinct forms that are really exciting and um, kind of get the imagination flowing. So it's um, yeah, it's a it's a great way to start a project. So we've actually um, had the frame. So what we're left with is actually the skeleton of the building, the the frames expo- exposed. So we've had all the, all of that um, 3D scanned and um, it's now uh, in a you know, CAD model that we can um, start to work with and, and um, build from. And we sort of, we've, uh, one of the ideas we brought to the project is this sense of awakening. So we're kind of awakening this existing frame and existing um, skeleton and, and turning it into the new, the new boiler house. When you have existing structures it can be tricky so um, we spend a fair bit of time understanding those structures as I said we had the structures 3D scan, so we've got an accurate model of what's there and that's great uh, to have that. I guess not too long ago um, you wouldn't have had that level of detail and kind of accuracy around the or knowledge of around the existing structures, but we do now, so that's really good. Um, so, yeah, so there's um, spending time to understand those structures and the constraints and the opportunities that they provide is, is a key starting point. Beyond that first phase of understanding, then it's all just exploration, really, and um, using the imag- imagination to respond to those structures.
0: One of the early ideas that's influenced the development of the boiler house is that the building and experiences inside of it could have a steampunk theme. Steampunk, in case you don't know, is a science fiction genre inspired by 19th century technology and design, including steam-powered machinery. If you're not familiar with it, look it up online, you'll get the gist of it. Given the combination of an old industrial boiler house, being given new life as a hub for steam activities, that is, science, technology, engineering, arts and mathematics, a steampunk design seems to be the perfect fit. I asked Stephen what he thinks of steampunk as a design inspiration and how he thinks it could be incorporated into the final design of the boiler house.
1: Well, actually, when we won the project, one of the, one of our collaborators, Mark Tendies from um, James Cupid Architects, was going to get his um, best steampunk gear on and out. <laughs> um yeah look we think it does have a have an idea we're still um exploring the, that theme i mean one of the briefed elements of this project is a uh a kind of a musical machine and and um so it just gets you thinking about some kind of um contraption that has all these bits and pieces and things that you can press and pull and levers and switches and all those sorts of things so i think the steampunk theme is has still has relevance to the project and we'll, we'll continue to, to explore that. Uh, for us, it's more about uh, an experience that is actually, um, you know, it's it's an experience that's engaging visually, um, but it might be things that you touch, it's, it might might be the way that you move through, might inform the way you move or um, respond to space physically. Um, so there's lots of di- different ways. That, um, it could, it could in, inform the project. And it might, and it might be that you, when you first look at it, it doesn't look classically steampunk, but um, yeah, some of the, the, as a starting point, it, it, it might inform the project.
0: One of Stephen's specialties as an architect is designing structures that respond authentically to the space in which they're built. In fact, Stephen even did a PhD studying Aboriginal concepts of place and space and how these can influence architectural design. Ask Stephen how he approaches understanding local attitudes towards place and how you can learn from others to help create designs reflective of their local community.
1: This is where the whole thing about relating buildings to place comes from. So the idea that if you design a building that responds to place, then it will de- inherently develop a, have a style that comes out of those considerations of place. And... In first principles, that might be as simple as a building that's, um, appropriately orientated to landscape or to topography or to the sun. All of those things, if you, if you do all those things, the building will develop its own, um, language that will, that will be unique because the inputs come from the the local considerations. In architecture, we, we learned a lot about the way, um, architecture can respond to place, but, what I found was that um, while we talked about the way architecture responded to place, often in Australia we weren't talking about how um, architecture could respond to Indigenous um, concepts of place. So I decided to um, undertake a postgraduate degree and then I studied at a, a research centre at the University of Queensland called the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre. Um, so I did a PhD concerned with Aboriginal concepts of place and cultural heritage, working with uh, communities in northwest Queensland. And just through doing fieldwork for that project, uh, led on to some consultancy work, some research work with anthropological teams um, on native title. And I guess one of the most enjoyable one was working on um, site recording for some native title processes, which involved, um, I think from memory, it a a year or so of um, recording sites all the way across um, Northwest Queensland, so it was um, yeah really, um, really um, rewarding experience, I guess, and um, yeah, I learnt a lot. But the starting point is, um, I guess, seeking out opportunities to learn about um, Indigenous um, uh, meanings and behaviours and significance in the of the place that you're working in. Um, And that's not always um, that easy to do, but that's what we we kind of um, seek out, those opportunities and to um, tailor a response that is um, unique to to what we are able to learn about those um, indigenous um, relationships to place to specific um, places. We've got some projects, for example, where we're not working because it's a more of a public building. Um, um, we're, we've commenced by working with a kind of focus group, um, of, um, uh, Indigenous people to, to, um, inform the initial approach to that project. And then as the project develops, that con- consultation will go out into a sort of wider circles of, of, of engagement. Um, but yeah, I think that, that consultation Really has to be, um, as I said, sort of tailored to each opportunity and, and the unique circumstances of each project.
0: Having no experience with architecture, it's hard for someone like me to even begin to imagine how such large-scale projects come to life. I had to ask Stephen, where does it all start? How does an idea for a large-scale building project come to life in the first place?
1: Well, I guess for a large project, it, it often starts with the, the client and the client uh, vision. That's really important. Um, St- a starting point. And I guess what we aim to do straight away, as soon as we can is to really immer- immerse ourselves in the client's vision and to gain a thorough understanding and, and then responding to that vision. And in responding to the vision, we look at all, all sorts of considerations at the same time, which includes the site, its constraints. Um, geotechnical considerations, all of these technical considerations, but then um, kind of higher level sort of vision and ideas um, as well. But often on, on um, public projects, you do start with a, d- a defined brief and they'll vary in, qu- in, in quality and in level of description. So sometimes we have to do a lot of work to, to um, work with user groups and stakeholders to tease out where they're aiming to go with the project and what their requirements are. And that's probably a, a normal um, process for us. And we kind of see that conversation with clients. Um, you know, it's like a collaborative conversation that occurs throughout the project. And it starts from that briefing process through the initial design responses and then continues right through the design development of the project. So it's just like an ongoing conversation. And It's really interesting that some of our best projects have really been underscored by having a client champion that's had that strong vision um, that's helped to drive the project. But, you know, sometimes there are are people who are not too sure. And so I guess um, part of our role is to to bring ideas and opportunities and to, to describe them to the client and to help them understand what could be achieved in a project.
0: I also wanted to ask Stephen... Once an idea comes together, how does the design process actually occur? What are the steps of taking concepts and design ideas and turning them into plans for an actual buildable structure?
1: So the way we work, we do work uh, with freehand sketches and, um, and we do that as a way of communicating within our team but also um, with clients early on and it's a good way to um, quickly communicate ideas. Um, but very quickly we'll also develop up a 3D model of the project. So based on the scan that we had of the existing structures, um, we'll then add to that with um, forms and spaces as we design them. And um, we've got tools that allow us to quickly generate um, still images of 3D images of the project, but also to navigate through the project. Um, So uh, even over Zoom, we can navigate through the project. We can pause. Everyone can look at a space. We can turn around in that space, look up, look down, all those sorts of things. And that's a great way to develop the design, but also for people to develop their understanding of where the design's at. Um, sometimes um, plans can be difficult to read. They're almost abstract, but when people are reviewing designs in 3D, they really quickly um, grasp um, the ideas and the approaches. So but we do have we have a large consultant team on this project of engineers so um, structural civil uh, electrical hydraulics uh, engineers uh, we have landscape architects we've got exhibition designers on board um, cost consultants so there's a lot of people that are contributing to the design it's not just um, the architects and Those consultants bring additional ideas into the mix. They also bring additional constraints that, you know, the reality of um, is it possible to make this structure span in this way or, or whatever the constraints are. Throughout the process, we have what we call design coordination meetings, and they're almost weekly with the consultant team to continue to resolve and and develop the design through the process. So it's it's really a process of iteration to start with, and then refinement as we're moving along. It's pretty common in projects to um, start off with some design ideas, and even to even sometimes to get down the track a bit with the design process and then have to readjust the thinking for a range of reasons. Um, being a little bit flexible around that and being able to adjust to, to you know, might be new constraints that come to a project, for example, and, you know, you need to be able to adjust to, the, to those constraints and kind of realign um, the design. So part of the starting point is having some ideas at the sort of, Baseline ideas or driving ideas that can weather the storm, so they can they can deal with any um, novel circumstances that come along along the way that require a bit of an adjustment of the um, of, of the approach. I think it's great actually being challenged along the way. Um, you know, sometimes it's a client that challenges you and um, makes you go around and um, explore lots of options or opportunities that. You may not have considered appropriate, um, but by doing that, it, it, it always ends up that you, that you get a stronger outcome. Um, not that we sort of <laughs> encourage being challenged too much, but um, but 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 that is part of the process to be challenged, and we actually do that internally in our studio. We have um, design reviews uh, held. Um, and architectures, we hold them nationally by Zoom and we have design leaders from each of our studios reviewing each other's projects and challenging um, each other. And it's just a great way to strengthen the design outcome.
0: When chatting to Stephen, I wanted to know what it's like seeing a design finally come together and see the buildings finally being constructed. I also wanted to know what it's like seeing finished projects and seeing your buildings go on to live lives of their own as they're used by their clients and communities.
1: Uh, it, yeah, it depends. Um, different projects, um, you do just hand over the design and, and you sort of stand back. Some projects you have more involvement um, during the construction phase, but that's a really exciting moment for architects seeing um, the initial um building works um, come out of the ground. And for me personally, I really enjoy seeing a building when it's just all framing, when the, when the structure's up and the, just the framing of the walls are up. I love seeing buildings um, in, when they're at that kind of raw state um, because I guess in some ways it's the first time that you can physically um, see what you've been imagining or what you've seen on screen and you, you're getting the first inklings of that just through the framing of the building. And I guess also it's really exciting when you see clients going into uh, design for the first time. And we recently had a client that went into one of our spaces and they cried when they went in because they were so happy. Uh, well, I hope they were happy. No, they were, they were happy. Um, they were so happy with the outcome and it's been, you know, been something that they'd been dreaming of for a long time and worked very hard to, to achieve. So, um, so that's a really lovely moment as well. For public projects like this will be, you know, with many people coming through the project. I mean, this, this project's going to have the influence many lives in some ways, because there'll be lots of young people coming through the project. There'll be people from the university util, utilising the facilities over many years. So, um, seeing people using the project is also like a really fantastic moment, um, in the life of a, of a project. But in some ways, I think architects never let go of projects. They always kind of <laughs> reflect on them and, and, um, you know, think about what they could learn from the project and take into the next project and all those sorts of things. There is a joke that you know some architects go back to buildings and um, realign uh, furniture in the building because it's not in the right place. But um, yeah, they do. They have a life of their own. So you do, you do have to kind of sit back and, and just uh, observe it, enjoy its own life, I guess.
0: At this stage in the development of the boiler house, there are a lot of ideas floating around and a lot of people imagining what the boiler house's future could look like. Ask Stephen if there's one thing that he wants to make sure is in the future of the boiler house and how he can see it implemented into its design.
1: I think um, just one of our initial thoughts is that um, natural light, so the quality of natural light in the project um, is going to be a key consideration because um, some of the discussions we've had is that often um, these sort of spaces end up being a black box type arrangement where... Light is excluded and it's all artificially lit, Um, but on this occasion, we're talking about a a project where we're we're looking to get as much natural light into the space as possible. And throughout the day, you know, as light changes throughout the day, that can have a really significant, um, have a positive impact on the experience within a building. And that's what we're, we're looking to explore.
0: find out more about architectus visit their website architectus.com.au this podcast is recorded on anaiwan country and has been brought to you by the university of new england to find out more about the Boilerhouse discovery space visit uneboilerhouse.org.au thanks for listening we'll see you here next time on curiosity built the boiler house